hopefully uh, I won't bore you to death. Uh, yeah, so we're going to first talk about inflammatory bowel diseases, and then we'll take a little bit of a break, and then go over GI foreign bodies. So in terms of objectives, basically going through all these parts of evaluating inflammatory bowel disease. Remember, this is a core lecture, uh, so it's supposed to cover what is standard of care, not necessarily the latest and greatest uh, stuff. All right, so... As you know, there are two types of inflammatory bowel disease, and inflammatory bowel disease is defined as chronic and unpredictable relapsing inflammation of the GI tract. There are two kinds, and it's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So talking about the epidemiology of those two conditions combined, one to two million people are affected in the U.S., and there's increased prevalence among whites, and uh, the group which has the highest rates of inflammatory bowel disease are Jews. Age of onset, there are two peaks. The, f uh, the highest peak is between the ages of 15 and 40, and it's usually um, diagnosed in the uh, teens and early 20s. And there's also a second peak, but much smaller peak, at ages 55 to 65. So this is a really important slide. So these next two slides are really important. If you guys want to go to sleep, these are the two that you should know. And these are things that have been reviewed last week with the questions, but these are things that they'll ask you on board. So ulcerative colitis is inflammation and ulceration throughout the colon and rectum. Okay, It never spares the rectum. Now, there is, there are people have different severities of ulcerative colitis. 25% uh, of people have disease that's confined to rectum, and then you have a spectrum of people in between, and then there's 10% of people with ulcerative colitis which affect the whole colon. The inflammation is typically continuous, although there have been recent cases of people who have had discontinuous ulcerative colitis, but at this point, just remember ulcerative colitis as having continuous lesions. And in terms of inflammation, it's only limited to the innermost layers of the colon. In terms of, uh, you know, how you get it, the etiology of it, there seems to be a genetic predisposition with uh, environmental factors that uh, contribute to it. This is the other slide that you need to remember. So Crohn's disease, it may affect any part of the GI tract. However, it is most often in the distal small intestine and the colon. Now, there are many different patterns of this disease, but the three major patterns are uh, Crohn's disease that affects the ileum and cecum, and then a form that affects just the small intestine and a form that affects just the colon. Now, typical to this, and in contrast to ulcerative colitis, is that it is, consists of skip lesions, so it's not continuous. And people who have chronic uh, Crohn's disease get cobblestoning, which is what this picture characterizes. Now, the inflammation, instead of being just the innermost walls, it affects it's transmural, so it affects the whole entire colonic wall. And so as a result, that's why patients with Crohn's disease may get fistula formation as well as abscess formation. Now, there's a strong genetic component to this disease, and with the fact that people with Crohn's disease have the um, less ability to absorb fats as well as bile salts, it's associated with gallstones and kidney stones. So, um, 
So there are, there's actually, uh, if you look at Rosen's, there's actually a way to classify mild, moderate, and severe disease of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So I want to just quickly go over, you know, what these guidelines are. And this helps form the way that you, you know, ask questions to the patient. So mild disease is patients with less than four stools per day. Now the stools may contain a little bit of blood in it. And patients with mild disease have no signs of uh, toxicity, which mean fever, tachycardia, anemia, or elevated ESR. People with moderate disease have greater than four stools a day, and they have minimal signs of toxicity. And patients with severe disease get greater than six bloody stools per day and do show signs of systemic toxicity. In regards to Crohn's disease, it doesn't, uh, the guidelines don't uh, talk about the number of stools, but basically how the patient looks. So a patient who has mild disease, they're usually ambulatory, able to eat, don't have much abdominal pain, don't show any signs of toxicity. Patients who have mild disease who have failed out to respond to typical treatment are counted as people with moderate disease, and patients with some systemic toxicity are counted as having moderate disease. Now, if the patient has significant symptoms like abdominal pain, having loss of appetite, having any signs of complications such as abscess, and in addition, if they have Crohn's disease and corticosteroid therapy is not helping, they're counted as having severe disease. So extracolonic manifestations really don't really play a role in that for severity of no. it. No. So um, this is just a slide which uh, just lists the different kinds of complications of the inflammatory bowel disease just focused to GI complaints. So with ulcerative colitis, typically in ulcerative colitis, you have toxic megacolon. I'm going to go over more about toxic megacolon in the next slide. Um, with ulcerative colitis, you have more, um, more complaints of GI bleeding, and so massive hemorrhage is a known complication of ulcerative colitis. And then in addition, you may have patients who get benign strictures, which for our purposes may be concerning in terms of causing obstruction. And then patients with ulcerative colitis, they do have uh, increased chance of colon cancer, in which uh, statistics show that uh, if you have uh, had uh, ulcerative colitis for 8 to 10 years, the percentage of colon cancer goes up by half to 1% per year. With Crohn's disease, as I said, uh, they have transmural uh, involvement, and so they have uh, complications which include formation of sinus tracts, which lead to you know, fistulas, which include enterovascular, enterocutaneous, enteroenteric, as well as enterovaginal fistulas. In addition, they also have more likelihood than also colitis to have abscesses. They also have perianal complications, which include skin tags, anal fissures, perirectal abscesses, and anal rectal fistulas. And since uh, Crohn's disease can affect any part of the GI tract, uh, patients may have aphthous ulcers and may also have some esophageal involvement of the disease. So this is a radiograph of toxic megacolon. So the things to look for on this x-ray are that it has a, the patient has a dilated bowel, and then you can see that the bowel wall is thickened, and the, the invaginations, which are typically the hostra, you can see how it's a little bit thickened with those arrows, and that's what the thumbprinting sign is. So um, toxic megacolon is defined as colonic dilatation with known inflammatory bowel disease who appears systemically toxic. Okay? 
And what happens is, this is inflammation that goes into the smooth muscle. And when the smooth muscle is affected, it paralyzes the colon, which eventually causes dilatation and eventual perforation. Some of the triggers include medications that may uh, cause an ileus, including anticholinergics, anti-motility agents, so those anti-diarrheal medications you give, narcotics, as well as antidepressants. In terms of symptoms, they do show signs of toxicity. So they're going to have abdominal pain and distension. They're going to also have fever and tachycardia. So in terms of workup, <laughs> there is, uh, you, know, you know, you'll typically get a history of crampy abdominal pain, tenesmus, which is cramping of the anus, uh, and you're also going to get a history of loosened diarrhea stools. In terms of bloody stools, you're going to get it more, you know, elicit that sort of history more from people with ulcerative colitis. Now, as I showed you before, there's a rating in terms of severity of the disease, so make sure to ask the number of stools that the patient has. And the other thing I want to bring up is just in general for evaluation of down pain, when you ask a patient whether they have diarrhea, make sure to ask what they mean by the diarrhea. Because people may just have stools that are just a little bit softer and they call that diarrhea. Some people truly have diarrhea, which is like really watery and all that stuff. So make sure to say, hey, what do you mean by diarrhea when you say that you have diarrhea? Is there like a definition of diarrhea? Like you have a number of stools or like viscosity of stools? There, there <laughs> is watery and the number of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just say it's about white. Yeah. Don't forget that. Just and if yeah. you know that fact, you're a geek, so don't. And yeah. Don't like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. But like, you know, people like always say, oh, I have diarrhea, but then they like say, oh, I went to the bathroom like three times in a day. Sometimes like, I have diarrhea. Yeah. I have diarrhea. I went with it yesterday. Yeah. Three more bowel moves today. So we had to ask specifically when he had the diarrhea. I'd say if he had more than three or four in a day, it was usually watery. Okay. And it's diarrhea. And this is actually a stool chart that was made because some people are not quite sure how to describe their stool. So, this is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I just wanted to briefly go over. I just want to briefly go over the medications used for uh, Crohn's disease, just because, just to get your, uh, you familiar with it, so that when you talk about the patient, you talk about their history, you know what they're talking about. So the mainstay of treatment right now is the use of five ASA agents. The one of the oldest agents is sulfasalazine, and what happens is sulfasalazine um, has. You know, it has some side effects, including sulfur toxicity as well as agranulocytosis. So. Um, some of the patients uh, right now, they actually are in a newer drug, which is called mesalamine, which doesn't, don't have those sort of side effects. You may see some patients on antibiotics, but then not all patients because the treatment, you, the use of antibiotics for just routine treatment of IBD is controversial. And in addition, you'll see patients on corticosteroids. And then finally, patients might be on immunomodulators, which are listed on the slide. And with those, they're usually used for patients who are resistant to corticosteroid treatments or even patients who they're trying to wean off of corticosteroids. They may be used briefly. On the physical exam, make sure to do a thorough physical exam and not only look at the belly, but also look at the rectum, okay? Look for fissures, abscesses, and do, and do a rectal exam uh, to look for occult blood.
Now here's just a garbage list of different kinds of uh, different diagnoses that you should consider for patients who come in with abdominal pain with similar uh, kind of symptomatology and also to think about it for patients who have inflammatory bowel disease and you just want to make sure there's nothing else that's going on that's going on on top of that in terms of diagnostic strategies pretty quick just everything you would do to work up abdominal pain and then sometimes uh, to kind of assess for severity, especially for ulcer colitis, you get the ESR and CRP. For imaging, I'll go over in the next few slides like different things that you may see, but you guys pretty much know what to do in terms of imaging for abdominal pain. And then most of the time, you aren't able, for people who do not have a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, but you suspect it, really the only way to definitively diagnose it is to do colonoscopy. And this is not something that we do in the emergency department. So the thing that you should do, being the responsible emergency resident, is to basically either tell the patient to follow up with their primary care doctor to get a workup for this, or even give them a GI referral to, have, uh, to get further workup for inflammatory bowel disease. So on the QDL series, I had already showed you a typical x-ray for toxic megacolon. I just want to show you two other things that you may see. Of course, these radiographs are enhanced by contrast, but one is the stovepipe sign. So this is patients with chronic ulcer colitis. What happens is that the inflammation causes the colon to become rigid and foreshortened, and so it loses the hostress. So you see toward the, uh, um, toward this side of the colon, it's just completely smooth. And then for patients with uh, chronic Crohn's disease, which happens you get strictures and you'll get narrowing and it's called the string sign. For CT and pelvis, uh, one of the things to look for is wall thickening and wall thickening should be associated with some other findings such as mesenteric fat stranding. Uh, here's basically a CAT scan showing uh, toxic megacolon and what you see is thinning of the colonic wall and then sometimes you may see actual perforation. So for ED management, uh, for exacerbations, the main thing is to do the ABCs, IV uh, and IV fluids. So you know, you check for the electrolytes and you restore whatever deficits there are, you restore the fluid balance, and also you give adequate pain control. Uh, certain ED docs may do things differently, but most of the time, if you end up doing it, adding additional other drugs for treatment, you should do it in concert with a GI, uh, GI doctor. So I would say give a call to the GI fellow if this is a patient that you think you know, needs to be admitted very severe, or this is something that you think the patient maybe will turn around and you're like, what do you want us to do for outpatient treatment? And of course, consult surgery if there are any complications which include you know, obstruction, perforation, life-threatening hemorrhage, or abscesses. Specifically with toxic megacolon, just make sure to hydrate them with lots of fluids, start them on IV antibiotics covering for GI flora, and then also start on IV corticosteroids and consult surgery. What do you recommend for pain control? Because there are other slide here saying that the opiates are uh, not recommended. So I think it's one thing that you think about uh, sort of like the risk-benefit ratio. So you see a patient who's in significant pain and you don't think that the typical medications are going to work, you're going to have to just take the hit and give them opiates, which 
definitely can lead to complication like toxic megacolon. But I think it's one of those things where this is what we have in the emergency department, this is what you're going to use, and that's the risk you're going to take. So in terms of disposition, um, if you think the patient can be discharged, as I said before, uh, talk with the GI, uh, either their primary GI doctor or you can, if they're a patient here at the university, talk to the GI fellow. And so they can be arranged with prompt follow-up and also, you know, they may recommend, hey, why don't you start, you know, the maintenance therapy or start on corticosteroids. Now, for patients who have not been established and you think they look good to go home, one of the things is, as I said, either set them up with a PCP and say, hey, you might have findings of inflammatory bowel disease on your CT scan. You need to follow up with them uh, or refer them to GI here. And for admission, it's pretty pretty easy to think about admission. Either they fail the outpatient course. If you've been treating them, they continue to have severe disease, severe pain, symptoms, abnormal vital signs, admit them. And then also if they have complications of disease in which you have to, you know, consult surgery. All right. Now, I'm, I have uh, something that needs audience participation. Um, so, just wanted to go over some extra intestinal complications. Not really going to talk about management or anything about it, but it's a thing that sometimes you'll get in terms of on your board exam, like visual diagnosis stuff, and these are things that you should be looking for. All right, so, um, all right, let's just go from the first row. So here's an x-ray of an extra intestinal complication. And you should mention what the condition is and whether it happens more in arthritis, uh, in, uh, sorry, in uh, Crohn's disease or ulcerative I think you gave the, the answer. So, what is this? Uh, arthritis. So, arthritis. And more common in Crohn's disease or ulcerative Crohn's disease. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, arthritis is more uh, common in Crohn's disease. It usually affects one or two large joints or many joints in the hands and feet. All right, Lee, next one. Okay, aptostomatitis happens more in Crohn's disease or ulcerative Good. All right, who's next? Let's see, Shannon. So uveitis, as you can see, you see the uh, the pus in the anterior chamber and the cloudiness, the hyphema and the cloudiness of the cornea. So it happens more in Crohn's disease or also colitis? Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease, good. Okay. All right, who's next? Lisa? Red yep. That you get on your yeah. Starts with an E. Sorry? Yeah. Okay. Oh, by the way, in the previous slide, it's uh, hypopia, not hyphema, in the anterior chamber. But yeah, it's more. Uh, so erythema nodosum. Crohn's disease uh, is it's more often. So as you can see this trend, a lot more of these extra intestinal complications, although they can happen in ulcerative colitis, they happen more often in Crohn's disease. All right, Randy, what's this? Uh, 
large bowel on the x-ray. We're going to let the lumbar spine Nope. So the bamboo spine. So this ankylosing spondylitis. Which one is it more often? Uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease? Good. Crohn's disease. Yeah, I thought so, but this is what uh, um, one of those papers shows. So. All right. How about this one? Who's the next one? Psoriasis? Yes, psoriasis. More in Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis? I'm going to go with Crohn's. Good. All right. <laughs> All right, how about this one? All right, who wants to go? Dina? Yes, pyodoma ganglionosum. It's actually the same. <laughs> All right, Shahina, last one. So let me just give you a clue. This is of the biliary tract. Good. Primary sclerosis and cholangitis. And does this happen more in Crohn's disease or also colitis? Also colitis. All right. So that's the main ones. Now there are other extraintestinal complications. Just make just one of the things is Crohn's disease and ulcerative uh, colitis, they're both inflammatory disease, so puts them, puts patients uh, both at higher risk of DVT and PE. With ulcerative colitis, you may also get autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And then with Crohn's disease, as I said, you may, uh, they're more likely to get gallstones as well as kidney stones, more likely to get osteoporosis, and part of it is that the fats basically in, that they can't absorb in the intestine uh, absorb the calcium, so they're basically calcium wasting. And then they also have a uh, uh, higher propensity of getting lung disease, so having interstitial lung disease, bronchiectasis, sarcoidosis, necrobiotic lung nodules, as well as pulmonary infiltrates with eosinophilia syndrome. What are necrobiotic lung nodules? It's pretty similar to sarcoidosis where you're getting like granulomas. So. All right, so here are the review questions. Do you guys have any questions? Okay. I hope this uh, lecture was helpful in terms of reviewing some of the important concepts. So, All right, so first question. A 29-year-old female uh, presents with four-month history of intermittent yeah. abdominal pain. Yeah. Does it matter what's, what type of uh, corticosteroid you start? No, not really. Um, lots of, lots of uh, articles have recommended hydrocortisone. You can give methylprednisolone if you want to, yeah. Um, so, 29-year-old um, female presents with a four-month history of intermittent abdominal pain with bloating and diarrhea. The diarrhea has been watery, non-bloody, and often nocturnal. Physical examination is remarkable for mild, diffuse tenderness and brown, guaiac positive stool. Rectal exam also demonstrates a small anal fissure at the 3 o'clock region. 
Laboratory evaluation is remarkable for only a normocytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 11.5. The diagnosis will most likely be confirmed by which of the following? This is just one of the review questions in the... Uh, write down the answer. Guys ready to answer the next one? 25-year-old male with Crohn's disease presents with multiple complaints. Which of the following is an extra-intestinal manifestation of Crohn's disease? And that bullet point doesn't mean that A is the correct <laughs> yeah. answer. So, sorry. <laughs> all right, ready for the next one? She is not fair because they're all, because they're all nuts. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go on to the next one. Uh, which of the following is true regarding ulcerative colitis? Uh, 